Please stay tuned for Forthright Radio. Welcome to this edition of Forthright Radio for February 3rd, 2021. I'm Joy LaClaire. We have a very full show for you today. Returning with his latest book is Tom Hartman. It's the latest edition in his Hidden History series, The Hidden History of American Oligarchy, Reclaiming Our Democracy from the Ruling Class, just released on February 2nd by Barrett Kohler Publishing. This joins the 30-plus other books Tom has written, beginning with ADD, A Different Perception, in 1992. We spoke with Tom Hartman on Friday, January 29th, 2021. Welcome back to Forthright Radio, Tom Hartman. Hi. Hey, Joy. Thanks for having me back. Tom, the latest in your Hidden History series, The Hidden History of American Oligarchy, Reclaiming Our Democracy from the Ruling Class, has just been published February 2nd, 2021 by Barrett Kohler Publishing. Congratulations. Thank you. Let's begin by explaining what is meant by oligarchy as opposed to any other archy, such as democracy. Oligarchy in short form is ruled by the rich and by oligarchs. The previous book, which you and I talked about, as I recall, is the, was the hidden history of monopoly. And monopoly is when corporate power, economic power, is concentrated in the marketplace. Oligarchy is when political power is concentrated in a very small number of hands in the political sphere. And that's where we're at, and certainly the direction we have been up until, well, we still are heading in closer and closer to a full-blown oligarchy every day. It's uh, If the Democrats are successful in getting H.R. 1 passed, then I think that might slow the momentum. But that's why I wrote the book, is that we have been moving closer and closer toward oligarchy ever since pretty much the late 1970s. And there have been a few big leaps in there where we made large jumps toward oligarchy. And there hasn't been that much pushback, frankly, until until now. We're starting to see some pushback. Tom, why don't you just take one moment and explain just the bare minimum of the details of that bill for our listeners? Well, the key to oligarchy is the corruption of politics. When politicians can be bought and sold, when politicians can be wholly owned by wealthy people, then the only thing that prevents your nation from becoming an oligarchy is that the sale hasn't been completed yet. There are still some politicians who are holding out and and are not selling their souls, as it were. And up until 1976, we had laws on the books to prevent this, that that in, in large part came out of past disastrous experiments with oligarchy here in the United States. You had the rise of the oligarchy in the South that led to the Civil War. Uh, you had a second rise of oligarchy in the 1920s that led to the Great Depression. And the oligarchs took on Franklin Roosevelt, but he fought them back and beat them. And out of, in, in particular, that second era, in 1907, Teddy Roosevelt passed a law called the Tillman Act that made it a federal felony for any corporation to give money to any candidate for political office at the federal level. And that stood on the books right up until the 1970s. And then after the Nixon bribery scandals, there were a number of pieces of legislation that were passed in 74, 75, 
and even early 1976 that tried to restrain politicians like Nixon from doing what he did. He had taken famously, you know, a, a million dollar cash bribe from Jimmy Hoffa to get him off a prosecution in the Sun Valley land deal. He had taken a half million dollar bribe from the milk council, I think it was called, the milk lobby for specific legislation that had to do with milk price supports in the farm bill. And we don't know about all the other bribes he took, but clearly he took a lot of other bribes. So they put specific limits on how much money any donor could give to any candidate for any purpose in any way and and capped individual contributions and things like that. Well, in 1976, the U.S. Supreme Court, now that Lewis Powell was on it, who in 71 had written his infamous memo suggesting that the oligarchs of America needed to get together and basically take over not just our government, but the institutions of America, seize control of our universities, of our media, of our court system, et cetera. The Supreme Court ruled for the first time in the history of America that if an individual billionaire, if an individual oligarch owned a politician, was the principal benefactor of a politician, that that politician principally acted in ways that benefited that particular oligarch, and there was clear support in both directions, we used to call that bribery, or, or at the very least, we would call it political corruption. But the Supreme Court in 1976 said, no, that's First Amendment-protected free speech. Money, in fact, is a proxy for speech. And so if a billionaire is giving money to a politician, that's protected by the First Amendment. Two years later, in a decision that was actually written by Lewis Powell called First National Bank versus Bilotti. First National Bank of Boston had been engaging in political activity that had nothing to do with banking in Massachusetts. And Massachusetts had a law that said that a corporation can only participate in politics if it directly affects their business. In other words, they could lobby for things. But First National Bank had gotten involved in a dispute that had to do with abortion. So they got sued and it went to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court said, well, you know what we said two years ago about billionaires owning politicians? We're going to say that about corporations now, too. If First National Bank wants to buy a politician. That's just fine. They're people, too, or they're persons, too. And they have uh, the same First Amendment free speech rights as, as do individuals. And the result of that was an absolute flood of money going into, into the political process. A lot of it was happening around at the state level all over the country, efforts in state after state after state, states that had historically been solidly democratic to flip them red, particularly low population states where the cost to, to flip a state red was not that high. And so you saw states that had historically been democratic, particularly across the Midwest and, and in the northern plains, the Dakotas and, and like that, flipping Republican very quickly. But most of that money went into the Reagan campaign and the GOP at the federal level. And that flood of money brought Ronald Reagan into power. The Democrats at that point in time were largely funded by the unions. It was their principal source of support. And so when the Supreme Court made that ruling, those two rulings in 76 and 78, the Democratic Party didn't do anything different. They were already being funded by the unions. I mean, there was so much union money sloshing around that corrupt union leaders like Jimmy Hoffa were even able to steal some of it and use it to bribe Richard Nixon. So therefore, the first thing Reagan did was take on the unions. He wanted to destroy unions in the United States because they were it was a way of defunding the Democratic Party. And he cut union membership in half in about 12 years. He was very successful at that. So successful that Bill Clinton had to had to start going back to corporations asking for money. And they created the DLC just to funnel money from banks and insurance companies into the Democratic Party in 1992. 
But that was the transition period when America went from being a pretty functional democracy where by and large, and there's a fascinating study that was done by two scientists from Northwestern University. One was Northwestern, the other was Princeton. And what they found was that prior to the mid-1980s, public opinion polls of legislation were actually a pretty good predictor of what was going to pass through Congress, which means you have a functioning democracy when what the public wants is what gets made into law. That's one of the signals or signs of a functioning democracy. And post-1990, after the Reagan revolution, up to this day, the probability there is no association, there's no measurable association between what the bottom 90% of Americans want in public opinion polls and what gets made into law. None whatsoever. In fact, they said it's equivalent since 2000, the probability of what the majority of people want happening uh, actually being turned into legislation at the federal level and the majority of states is equivalent to random noise, was their phrase. Whereas prior to the 1980s, what the top 3% wanted was yeah, 50-50 to be made in a Now, virtually all legislation is exclusively what the top 3% want. And that's another huge flag that the country has devolved from a democracy into an oligarchy. By the way, we saw a very similar process in the 1920s that brought us the Roaring Twenties. Warren Harding in the election of 1920 ran on a campaign platform he had two slogans. One was a return to normalcy, which was code for drop the 91% income tax, which he did when he got elected. He dropped it down to 25%, just like Reagan did. And then the second was more business in government, less government in business, which today we would say privatize and deregulate, and which he did. And that led to a period of, of almost 10 years where that we call the Roaring Twenties, where wages on working people actually went down significantly. The middle class suffered terribly. Working people got poorer, but the richest 5% of Americans more than tripled their wealth during that nine-year period. And of course, that led right to the Great Depression. So that was the last kind of battle with oligarchy that we had. And fortunately, we had Franklin Roosevelt as president. He brought us out of it and returned America back to democracy. And I'm increasingly hopeful that the Biden administration will follow that path. In fact, Joe Biden now has a picture of Franklin Roosevelt hanging in his office, which I take as a good sign. It's interesting. Both Franklin Roosevelt and Theodore Roosevelt would be considered oligarchs, would they not? Yes, they were both very, very wealthy men. They, the whole Roosevelt family was very, very wealthy. And, and in fact, this was the hit on both of them at the time by people like them, was that they were, quote, traitors to their class. In recent shows, as we are doing now, we keep going back to the American history that has brought us to the incredible moment in our history in which we, uh, for the very first time since our founding, we have not had a peaceful transfer of government from one administration to the next. Insurrectionists violently invaded the U.S. Capitol on January 6, 2021, forcing the members of the House of Representatives and the Senate to flee, some in fear of their lives. They were prevented from fulfilling their constitutionally required duty to receive the votes of the Electoral College on the actual day required, since they were not able to do that until the next morning, January 7th. The single-term presidency of Donald J. Trump has resulted in his having been impeached twice, which is fully 50% of all the presidential impeachments in our history. 
The Senate, as we speak, is preparing for the trial to adjudicate the charges of impeachment brought by the House of Representatives. And the recent 55 to 45 vote regarding whether it's constitutional to try a president after he leaves office raises the question of whether Trump will be held accountable for his role in fomenting the insurrection. And the 2020 election was also historic in that despite the crisis of a global pandemic, all records for voter turnout were broken. Trump received more votes than any incumbent in history, 74.2 million votes. Biden, of course, got 8 million more votes than that. But even before the 2016 election, Trump asserted that he would only accept the results if he won. And his misinformation and disinformation, assisted by many in the Republican Party, was that the only way he could lose would be due to voter fraud. Well, fully 70 percent of Republicans, according to recent polls, believed that the election was stolen. Members of Congress are expressing fear of physical harm from fellow members. So we really do seem to be in an historic period of crisis and danger. Now, in the hidden history of American oligarchy, you examine the tensions that have brought us here. Before we get into that history, though... What can you share with our listeners about this current situation in which we find ourselves? Well, we're in a crisis, and and I think you identify, Joy. I think you identified the crisis really well. It's it's it is a series of of lies, or or really one large lie, a big lie that Donald Trump has been telling since he was uh, in, you know entered the the Republican primary. When he came into the Republican primary, his sales pitch was that the system is rigged. The electoral system was rigged, not just the economic system. Here in Hampshire, for example, he said that it was black people in Massachusetts coming up in giant buses in order to vote for his opponents and or vote against him. He, he, he has been telling these lies. And then after Hillary Clinton beat him by three million votes in the in the national popular vote, he said, "No, no, that was Mexicans in California voting. They were they weren't legal citizens, and so that that wasn't real." And he continued to tell that lie over and over and over and over again throughout the four years of his presidency. And you're right; he completely telegraphed. And this is this is the kind of thing you see with dictators. If the election goes my way, it's a valid election. If it doesn't go my way, it's an invalid election. The tragedy is that we have all been trained from childhood in elementary school and civics class and everything else to believe our president. The president is the leader of the country. He's the stand-in for the king or the pope. He's the, the ultimate moral and political authority. And so when you have this corrupt situation, which uh, we've been close to in areas that don't have to do with the perpetuation of the presidency, we've had George W. Bush lie us into a war in Iraq. We had Lyndon Johnson lie us into a war in Vietnam. We had McKinley lie us into a war in Cuba, you know, the Spanish-American War. But outside of those things, by and large, we've always been able to trust our presidents. And so it shouldn't be surprising that the majority of the people who voted for Donald Trump or for voted Republican believe they're president. And he continues to, to promote this lie, and he's got a lot of people around him promoting this lie. And people like Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley and, and these other Republicans 
And even when you confront them on it, they go, well, I still have some questions, which is just another way of saying, yeah, well, I'm still supporting that lie. And the problem is that let's say that Donald Trump had won the election and Joe Biden came out and said, you know, the election was stolen. It was stolen from me in Georgia. Here's the proof. Here's the names. Here's the people. Here's some video. I can prove it. Oh, by the way, it was also stolen in Arizona. I can prove that. Here's the names. Here's some people who are, want to testify. We're going to file lawsuits. We're going to file dozens and dozens of lawsuits. We're going to prove that it was stolen. At a certain point, you and I might start thinking, geez, Joe Biden actually is president. And America has a long tradition of, of standing up for democracy. And if you thought, if we thought that Donald Trump had stolen the White House, we'd be in the streets. You know, there'd be hell to pay. And we should have some understanding. I'm not asking for necessarily compassion, but at least understanding of what is happening right now. You've got tens of millions of Americans who believe a lie that has been told to them by a serial liar, a man who's founded his entire life on lies, who brags about his lies in his books. You've got tens of millions of Americans who believe those lies, and some of them are willing to take violent action to defend the man that they think was robbed and to defend the nation that they think has been, has been seized. And it's going to continue to be a crisis, Joy, until Donald Trump either admits that he lost the election, which, frankly, I doubt he'll do. I think he'll go to his grave insisting that he won. Or the American people, particularly Republicans, become so convinced that Donald Trump is just an unrepentant liar. And this is his big lie, just like Hitler's big lie was that uh, it was Jews and communists who, who cut the deal to end World War One and stick Germany with the Treaty of Versailles, that Germany had been stabbed in the back by people within. That's what led right to the death camps. And Trump's lie is leading, led right to January 6th and five dead people in Washington, D.C. And I fear more to come. So we've got a big challenge here, particularly with a timid media that's largely unwilling to call lies lies. We're speaking with Tom Hartman. His latest book in the Hidden History series is The Hidden History of American Oligarchy, Reclaiming Our Democracy from the Ruling Class. You go into the process under oligarchs of normalization, and you refer to people who interviewed Germans after the Third Reich about how good-hearted, everyday people allowed the atrocities of the Third Reich to occur. Let's go into that, the process of normalization, and see if it might apply to our own situation. Well, I think that's exactly what's been happening. For at least the first three and a half years of the Trump presidency, much of the American press tried to treat him as if he was a normal president, even as he was telling 30,000 lies and constantly lied. And they would use euphemisms. Oh, it's an untruth. It's an inaccuracy. It's an unforced error or things like this. No, they were lies and they were intentional lies. Trump's big enemy is the truth. And he has taken that enemy down for the majority of the Republican Party. 70% of, of uh, Republican voters right now are still supportive of Donald Trump. I mean, that that is just breathtaking when you think about it. And so this is the work that we have to do, Joy, is, is tell people what actually happened, wake people up. In our history, political parties have come and gone. And 
One of the things in our current situation is that there seems to be the possibility that the one of the major parties, the Republican Party, may be fracturing over what basically is the issue of those who have the integrity to stand up for truth and those who blindly ally with Trump no matter what he does or or what he says. And I'm thinking of Representative Liz Cheney, the Republican congresswoman from Wyoming. She is the third most powerful Republican in the Congress. Here's a quote from her. Quote, the president of the United States summoned this mob, assembled the mob, and lit the flame of this attack. Everything that followed was his doing. None of this would have happened without the president. End of that quote. Mitch McConnell said something similar, not quite as strong, but similar, a day or two after the insurrection. Kevin McCarthy, so these are the three most powerful Republican members of Congress, all said similar things. Now, McCarthy not only has retracted the statement, but he went down to Palm Beach on the January 28th, 2021, to speak with former President Trump. Former Majority Leader of the Senate, Mitch McConnell, in spite of his earlier statement, was one of the 45 members of the Senate who voted against the constitutionality of, what would you say, bringing the a not-sitting president to trial for impeachment. So I wonder, do you see the fracturing of the Republican Party as happening from a historic point of view? What is your assessment of that situation? Originally, I thought that the Republican Party was basically disintegrating the same way the Whig Party did in the 1820s through the 1840s, largely in the 1830s through the late 1840s, which led to the emergence in 1856 of the Republican Party in Jackson, Michigan in June of 1856. I'm increasingly, though, thinking that what we're seeing, if we're looking for an analogy, is closer to the conservative party in Germany that Hitler took over, because the party is now purging its more moderate members. It no longer is a party that is defined by issues. And and this is what happened to the Whigs by the 1840s. It is a party that's defined by personality. And the principal personality is that of of a man who uh, wants to be a dictator, a strong man. He he wants to be like uh, Putin or Erdogan. And in fact, has said so (laughs) on various occasions. And so what's happening in the Republican Party is you've got some people like Cheney and, and Jeff Flake and people like that who are standing up and getting swatted down. There's a movement right now within the Republican caucus and at the level of the RNC to purge Liz Cheney of all of her power. And it's going to be a fascinating year or so. My guess as to what is going to happen is that Trump is going to set up essentially a shadow government in Mar-a-Lago. He's probably going to have 10 or 12 Republican governors who will come and and kiss his ring as Kevin McCarthy did yesterday. He's going to start dictating policies. He'll he'll come up with a new platform. Twitter's gone for him, but there's no shortage of Twitter wannabes out there and his participating in one of them will make it work. And uh, we're going to see the cult of Trump is either going to succeed in completely subsuming the Republican Party and it will turn from being 
a traditional American political party into a fascist party, essentially. Or the Republican Party will fight back and say, no, we're the party of the billionaires and the big corporations and, and even the mainstream businesses were we're the party of business and, and, and money as opposed to labor and that kind of thing. The traditional, the Dwight Eisenhower Republican Party, the Richard Nixon Republican Party, frankly. Uh, they're either going to go back to that or they're, or they're going to be split. I mean, they're, they are split right now. But what the end of this is, I can't foresee. My fear, though, is that the Republican Party is becoming and is going to become solidly a fascist party and will align with and is already starting to align with other international fascist parties like the one that Marine Le Pen runs in France, the AFD party in Germany. I'm forgetting the name of the one in Sweden, but there's a very active neo-Nazi fascist party in Sweden. There's a number of them around the world. They all get financial and moral and political support, particularly uh, with trolls and whatnot on social media from countries like Saudi Arabia and, and Russia and friends of Trump, as it were. And if that happens, and then the Republican Party prevails or tries to pull the exact same event that happened on January 6th, only does it more effectively in four years when Tom Cotton or Josh Hawley runs for president and loses and then says, no, this election was stolen and provokes a, a storm. The American experiment is over. The Arizona legislature is flirting with this right now. They're trying to pass a law. The Republicans in the legislature put forward a law saying that basically the will of the voters in Arizona, it won't matter in the future, that the legislature will decide who gets the electoral votes from Arizona. And it's a law that would be constitutional because the Constitution simply says each state can figure out how their electoral votes will be apportioned. So I see some very troubling signs on the horizon here, Joy, and maybe not even the distant horizon. The same day that Representative McCarthy went to Florida to, as you put it, kiss the ring of Trump, Florida Representative Matt Gates was in Wyoming rallying against Liz Cheney. So, I mean, it's right. just mind-boggling to me anyway what's going on and this is in the context where under Trump's direction and the loyalty to Trump the Republican Party lost the House of Representatives the Senate and the presidency and this in the context of a very unusual runoff election in Georgia where both senators were up for re-election, incumbent Republicans defeated by the incredible on-the-ground grassroots organizing of their opponents in Georgia. But mind you, Georgia is was under the control of Republicans at the governor, the lieutenant governor, the secretary of state, and the person assigned to overseeing the vote. They were all Republicans. They all asserted that the election was valid. The votes were counted three times. Well, the presidential votes I'm speaking of now were counted three times, including one where every single paper ballot was counted individually. And still, Trump called them all sorts of names, unloyal being the easiest of them. And he even was recorded calling the Secretary of State, pressuring him to find 11,000 plus votes to overturn that election. This is not esoteric news. This is commonplace news. And still, where can you go from there, Tom Hartman? Well, you're making my point, Joy. 
and that is that this nation is in a very severe crisis right now. The epicenter of that crisis is in the Republican Party. If Liz Cheney does not survive this purge, she's uh, this is sort of like Hitler and von Papen. Von Papen brought him to power, and then Hitler took him out when he started speaking out against Hitler. Liz Cheney helped Trump come to power. She helped him get elected. She campaigned for him. She worked for him aggressively in both elections. And then she turned on him. She represents probably the most serious threat to Trump and Trumpism in the United States, which is why Matt Gates, who's one of the neo-fascist toadies, uh, one of the most aggressive of, of Trump's neo-fascist toadies, he wants to be you know, the, the right hand of the king in the new kingdom and wants to be the king himself someday, you know, huge delusions of grandeur here. These are the kind of people that surround dictators and help them hold power and come to power. And Donald Trump is going to try to regain his political power. And if he can direct the Republican Party to expel Liz Cheney and elevate Marjorie Taylor Greene, who is as Trumpy as you can get, I mean, you know, a fan of conspiracy theories, a serial liar, spreads literally blood libels, anti-Semitism, racism. Uh, this is at the core of fascist movements. It always is this this uh, machismo, this this toxic masculinity, which doesn't require a man to exhibit and her chasing David Hogg down the street and saying, I've got a gun. If that happens, we are facing a crisis of the proportions that we faced at the time of the election of Abraham Lincoln. And vis-a-vis -vis Representative Green, in, ad in addition to asserting to David Hogg, who was a survivor of the Parkland High School massacre, that she had the gun, she also has asserted that there aren't these mass shootings, that they are all crisis actors funded by George Soros, uh, aimed at taking away your guns so that tyranny can ensue, etc., etc. Anyway, she was just named onto the House Education Committee, which is a cruelty. Right, by Kevin McCarthy. Yeah, it's a cruelty that is just beyond anything I could have imagined. Well, anyway, let's move on. This is Kevin McCarthy's way of, of I mean, it goes beyond just it being like, you know, a giant middle finger to, to victims of school shootings. It is the neo-fascist branch of the Republican Party asserting that they don't care what we think. They don't care about propriety or norms. They only care about power. And people who are on their side are on their side, period, and they will, they will go all the way to the end with them. And people who are not on their side, they will do whatever it takes to destroy. That's where we're at right now in the GOP. I think it also asserts that they don't care about education. Well, they never cared about education. You know, remember uh, Donald Trump saying, I like the uneducated? Oh, yes. <laughs> I certainly do remember it. And when I heard that it's the first voters. time, it gave me chills. But of course, that is one of the grievances of many of the followers of Trump and Trumpism is the inequities of our economic system that seems to divide between the college educated, the quote unquote elite, and the non-college educated who have been called, unfortunately, the deplorables, which is a term that they have now taken with pride. 
And I think that we really need to acknowledge that the extreme inequality that the oligarchic system has created is in large part what has created the support for Trumpism. It's a it's a paradox. Uh, what can you help us unravel that paradox, Tom Hartman? Back in 1951, as the American middle class was growing and becoming wealthier, and throughout the 1950s and 1960s and the early 19s, uh, well, actually even right up until the early 1980s, the working class in America was growing their income as a percentage of their income and their wealth as a percentage of their wealth was growing more rapidly than was the income and wealth of the top 5%. We grew the biggest and strongest and most powerful, economically powerful and politically powerful middle class in the history of the world in the 1950s, 60s and 70s. And in 1951, a political philosopher by the name of Russell Kirk wrote a book called The Conservative Mind, which kicked off the modern conservative movement. And in that book, and I, I lay all this out in my book, The Hidden History of American Oligarchy, in that book, Russell Kirk said that if this trend continues, if working class people continue to get wealthier and wealthier, we're going to see a complete breakdown of American society because young people will feel sufficiently independent of their parents because their families are sufficiently wealthy that trickles down to them. Young people will defy parental norms. Women will start demanding rights in the workplace and, and equality with men. Minorities will start demanding an equal say and an equal place at the table, as it were. Keep in mind, I mean, the, Kirk started his book by talking about the need for orders and classes of people, which is classic Sir Edmund Burke. In fact, Burke was the entire first chapter of his book was all about Edmund Burke, who was the guy that Thomas Paine visited in, in the United Kingdom on his way to France to get arrested in the French Revolution. Paine was a conservative philosopher, and Paine was so furious, so outraged by the debates that he had with Burke during the two weeks that he stayed at his mansion, that he wrote an entire book called The Rights of Man as a rebuttal to Burke. <laughs> so anyhow, so Russell Kirk comes out and says, no, Burke had it right. And what's going to happen is all these people are going to rise up if they get wealthy enough. And this is why England, for hundreds of years, at the time that America became an independent republic, England had maximum wage laws. They didn't apply to rich people, but you could not pay working people over a certain amount because they did not want a middle class to emerge because they viewed it as a political threat. And so Kirk was essentially saying the same thing. I mean, this is what Burke was railing about in 1790. And so in 1951, he laid this out in this book. And most American conservatives and Republicans thought he was kind of a crackpot. Barry Goldwater loved it. It, it was, became the foundation of Goldwater's philosophy. William F. Buckley loved it. It became the foundation of virtually every one of Buckley's books, at least the ones that I've read. I've only read two or three of them, grounded in Russell Kirk and Sir Edmund Burke. But most people thought, ah, you know, it's, uh, it's going to be okay. And then the 60s came. And in 61, the birth control pill was legalized. And by 64, 65, you had a women's movement. Women could control their reproduction. And so they were, they were demanding equal rights of men in the workplace. By 65, 66, 67, you had the war in Vietnam that Lyndon Johnson had cranked up. You had young people saying, hell no, I won't go. They were, they were defying authority and burning draft cards. Women were burning bras. Black people with a civil rights movement that uh, was being led at that time by Reverend Martin Luther King were literally burning cities in defiance of police violence. And in that 
little window of time from basically about 1963-64 after Goldwater's defeat in the 64 election until 1970. In that little six-year window of time, all across America, Republicans and conservatives looked back at what Russell Kirk had written and said, oh, my God, he was right. He was absolutely right. And American society is falling apart because we let the middle class get too wealthy. And so the mandate that Ronald Reagan had from people like Buckley, from the thinkers, from the intellectual class, the George Wills of the time, although George Will was of that time as well. The mandate that Reagan had when he came into office on, the, on this ocean of money that the Supreme Court provided for him with the Buckley and Bellotti decisions was to take the middle class down a notch or two. You had you know, working people also refusing to work. It was called strikes. This was another thing that Kirk predicted was going to get bad. And so Reagan set out to destroy the, the union movement, to stop the women's movement, to disempower minorities. His, he, his first campaign appearance after he was nominated by the Republican Party for president in 1980 was in Philadelphia, Mississippi, where three civil rights workers had been murdered just a few years earlier. They made a movie out of that, Mississippi Burning, uh, Schwarmer, Cheney, and Goodman. And Reagan gave this speech to an all-white audience about states' rights. It wasn't even a dog whistle. It was a bullhorn and an extension of Nixon's Southern strategy. And so for the last 41 years, we have not left this neoliberal Reaganism bubble. Bill Clinton bought into it in his second inaugural address. He said the era of big government is over. In one of his speeches, he said, you know, we have ended welfare as we know it. He completely bought into Reaganism. Not completely, but largely bought into Reaganism, gave lip service to the unions, but shipped good union jobs overseas like there was no tomorrow. From the time Clinton came into office until today, we've lost 65,000 factories, over 6 million jobs directly attributable to that. And that's according to U.S. federal government statistics from the Department of Labor. So Reagan succeeded in gutting the middle class and the conservatives who really loved America and believed in America, the William F. Buckley's the Barry Goldwaters, and frankly, the, the Ronald Reagans. They thought that the result of taking the middle class down a peg or two would be a return to social normalcy, that we'd return to the kind of stable, normal, heteronormative society that we had in the 1950s, that uh, gay people would go back in the closet, that black people would stop protesting in the street, that women would go back to being barefoot and pregnant and, and good housewives and cooking dinner for, for their husbands. And that young people would go back to being, you know, nice regimented college students. And of course, that's not how it played out. What, what happened is as the middle class got gutted, the next generation coming up, the people who are now in their 30s through their, through their 50s by and large, or their 20s through their 50s, are looking at their parents' generation and, and grandparents' generation and saying, well, they had it pretty good, but I got screwed and I'm really pissed. And I don't know why I got screwed. And then people like Trump come along and say, well, I could tell you who screwed you. It was those Democrats. It was those awful labor unions and those union bosses. And it was all those regulations that are stifling innovation in companies, you know, the clean air laws and stuff like that. That's who screwed you. And not only that, it's those black people who took your job. And it's those brown people from Mexico who want to take your job if you ever get it back. They're all lies, by and large. But what did Mark Twain say? You know, a lie gets us halfway around the world before the truth has it, gets its boots on. They have succeeded in 
in getting tens of millions, you know, 74 million for Donald Trump. And, and that's just the people who showed up. Tens of millions of Americans have bought this big lie that's been sold by conservatives, neoconservatives, neo-fascist conservatives, these people who call themselves Republicans. And it's ripping our country apart, John. That same era that you were talking about, 1951, we had come out of the Depression and World War II. There was a sense of we did it. We did it together. And even though in 52, a two-term Republican presidency under Dwight D. Eisenhower with Richard Nixon as his vice president, taxes were really quite high. And that actually was, many people look back on the 50s with fondness. I think that's one of the things the MAGA thing was about. And mm-hmm. there there were aspects of it which were positive for many people. And this sense of we did it together, we're doing it together is one of them. But now, as you just elucidated, the feeling is there isn't enough and the mindset is that if you get something, I lose something, rather than the more you can fulfill your gifts, the better we all are. And just as an example, during the Obama administration with the Tea Party resistance to the Affordable Care Act, they resented, remember the, the Cadillac coverage that the Wisconsin mm-hmm. union workers had? Well, instead of using that Cadillac coverage as an example of what everyone could and should have, they tried to bring it down as low as possible. I I mean, I remember at the time just being confused by that. And just one more thing that I want to add. I read an essay by somebody, I think, in Canada. And it was one of the countries where universal health coverage is just granted to everyone. And one of the things that they said that meant to their entire culture is that the richest person in Canada can go and buy something at a grocery store and the clerk who serves her knows that she has the same coverage as the wealthiest person. And a reminder... This health coverage, universal health coverage, was enacted in the United Kingdom in, I think, 1949, when their country was devastated by the effects right. of World War II. And it was enacted by a conservative government. It was, an, it was a conservative prime minister who pushed that through. This is the thing. This is the job that the Democratic Party has to do now. And, and the media is not making it any easier with their phony both, both sides-isms and all this kind of stuff. I mean, it's just it's really a rather pathetic thing. But the media has to convey the reality of our situation right now. And one of the things the media does very poorly is, is put it in a historical context, which is why I wrote this book. I think it's so important that we understand the actual history. How did, how did we get here? How did Russell Kirk, for God's sake, change the world? He's been long dead. Or Lewis Powell. I mean, what do, the, what do these guys have to do with today? And Ronald Reagan and everything. And it's, and it's really kind of a sad story because the people who were the big supporters of Ronald Reagan and the Reagan revolution were kind of in two camps. There were the people who were the idealists who believed that America had gone too far in pluralism, essentially. 
and there was a big racial element, of course, to this. The 1950s were great for a lot of people, almost all of them white. But nonetheless, there was this idealistic group who thought that, well, if we just reduce the unionism rate by 10 or 20 percent and we just reduce the general wealth of the middle class by 10 or 20 percent, then we'll return to that 1950s stability and everything will be good. But then there was also this this much smaller group of people who had funded the career of Lewis Powell, who had funded the career of Robert Bork, who built the Heritage Foundation and the, and the Mercatus Center and, the, and on and on, all these right-wing think tanks and the, the State Policy Network and, and ALEC and whatnot. And they really were just mostly interested in getting richer than they were and holding political power in order to guarantee their economic power. And those are the folks who have been, by and large, with Donald Trump through thick and thin, with the Republican Party through thick and thin, and their interest is not in an America that works. They don't believe in democracy. They don't believe in a Republican, small r, Republican form of government. They are followers of Thomas Hobbes and Edmund Burke. They believe in a somewhat democratized form of loyalty, a neo-Calvinism, as it were. This is the struggle. The conservative worldview is rooted in the, in the belief that people are fundamentally evil, and therefore we have to figure out ways to control evil people in society. And we are confronted by this terrible dilemma of how do we choose who's going to run society when everybody's fundamentally evil? And that comes out of the Bible. It comes out of, and Thomas Hobbes, you know, Hobbes in, in, in 1651 in Leviathan wrote that if man is reduced to his natural state, there will be no letter, no, no arts, no transportation, no comfortable accommodation, and the life of man will be nasty, brutish, and short. And that's our natural state. And then John Locke and John Jacques Rousseau and Thomas Jefferson and Thomas Paine and George Washington and these other guys came along and said, no, no, the natural state of, of mankind, of humankind is good. And therefore, we can actually govern ourselves and we can actually believe in democracy. And that's become the liberal worldview. Well, the conservative worldview has always struggled with this issue of if we assume that everybody's evil. If we assume that we need strong, iron-fisted law and order institutions to keep people in place, how do we pick our leaders? And John Calvin, who was an evangelist in, in the, as I recall, in the 1500s, came forward and said, well, I have an idea. Because we're all evil and we're all, because we're all born out of women, and thus have original sin, we have to look out in the world and see where God has bestowed his blessing. This is God's way of telling us who he wants to lead us. And so, obviously, the rich people have received the blessing of God, so they should be the one that we choose to, to lead our countries. And uh, that's the foundation of modern Calvinism, or kind of, you could call it neo-Calvinism. This wasn't John Calvin's big sales pitch. It was kind of peripheral to the main things that he's remembered for, his five treatises and all that. But it's something his followers picked up and has become at the core of Calvinism for a couple hundred years. And of course, that's probably why Betsy DeVos is, is a Calvinist. You know, it's the Calvinist church, it's the billionaire's church. And so we've got a Republican Party now that's looking to a billionaire, a gaudy billionaire, who's saying, look at me, I'm rich. I must be the right guy. You know, I know how to do it. Only I can save you. Only I can fix it. And they're operating out of this worldview that you have to have, as Hobbes said in Leviathan, the iron fist of church or state. 
you have to have an iron fist to rule. And, and if we're going to find somebody with an iron fist who's going to be a good person, it's going to have to be a rich person. I mean, this is kind of the merger of Hobbesian worldview and Calvinism and modern neoconservatism. And it's driving us straight into fascism, as it did Germany in the 1930s. And there are those who explicitly state that Trump is God's chosen. Tom Hartman, we're almost out of time, but I want you to tell our listeners what you have found out about what the science actually has learned about whether oligarchy is natural in the animal world or not. Yeah, this is fascinating. There were a couple of scientists, Kent Conrad and, and Roper is the other guy, I forget his first name. They compiled some fascinating studies in the UK. They were out of University of Sussex. And near the college, there was this herd of red deer. And so they put cameras in the trees to see how the red deer do decision making. Because when you decide to stop grazing and go to the waterhole, that decision has consequences. If you go too soon, you're going to have some members of your herd who don't have enough food. If you go too late, you're going to have deer who are dehydrated. There are maybe particular times of day when there's predators around. There's all kinds of considerations. So how do they make these decisions? And they assumed that there was like a, the head red deer, the big buck who told everybody what to go and when. And what they discovered was as, they, as these animals were grazing, they would start pointing toward one of the three water holes on the campus. And when 51% of them were all pointing their heads in the direction of one particular watering hole, the entire herd in a matter of moments would gather and go to that water hole. So they published this finding, and I interviewed Roper for a book that I was writing at the time. This was almost a decade ago. And I said, has anybody else gotten in touch with you about this research? And he says, oh, you wouldn't believe it. He said, the uh, entomologist, the bug guys called me up and said, we see the same thing with insects. You see a, a, a swarm of gnats a ball of gnats in the air, and it seems like they move with an intelligence, like they're flocking. Well, it turns out each one of them is voting with each wing beat. And the same thing with birds. When they're flying, it looks like they have ESP. How do they coordinate that? Well, each wing beat is a vote. And if more than 50% of the birds in the flock vote to move one degree to the right by moving their bodies one degree to the right, the entire flock will go. But if it's only 49%, it doesn't happen. Same thing with fish, schooling, fish schooling behavior. He says, you know, I'm hearing from ichthyologists. So, yeah, democracy, it turns out, majority rule is the norm in the animal kingdom, from insects to mammals to us. There are a few exceptions, but they are few and far between. And even the exceptions tend to have a democratic, small d democratic underpinning. So the Republicans and the neo-fascists and the conservatives are not only fighting history, they are fighting biology. And that's why whenever they succeed, as Hitler did in the 30s, as Mussolini did, and, and we can go back through history and find case after case after case where they succeeded, every time they succeed, that success only lasts a few generations because eventually our DNA fights back. Well, Tom Hartman, that's a terrific place in which to leave our discussion today. Thank you so much for joining us again on Forthright Radio. And your latest book is The Hidden History of American Oligarchy, Reclaiming Our Democracy from the Ruling Class, published by Barrett Kohler Publishing. Thank you so much. My pleasure, Joy. Thanks so much for having me on your program. You have just heard a conversation with author, TV, and radio host, Tom Hartman, recorded on Friday, January 29, 2021. 
To follow up on a few of the events discussed, Representative Liz Cheney, House Republican chair, is picking up support from some influential Republicans as her allies close ranks and resist the effort to oust her from the third-ranking spot in House GOP leadership. Mitch McConnell finally issued a statement on February 1st stating, quote, Liz Cheney is a leader with deep convictions and the courage to act on them. She is an important leader in our party and our nation. I am grateful for her service and look forward to continuing to work with her on the crucial issues facing our nation. End of the quote. And a cross-section of GOP lawmakers, from top Republicans in Senate leadership like fellow Wyoming Republican Senator John Barrasso, to some conservative House Freedom Caucus members like Representative Chip Roy of Texas, have publicly defended Cheney in the face of the onslaught from Trump defenders eager to see her defeated. In a separate statement that same day, Republican Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell said, quote, Loony lies and conspiracy theories are cancer for the Republican Party in our country. Somebody who suggested that perhaps no airplane hit the Pentagon on 9-11, that horrifying school shootings were pre-staged, and that the Clintons crashed JFK's airplane is not living in reality. This has nothing to do with the challenges facing American families or the robust debates on substance that can strengthen our party. End of the quote. Two days after Mr. McCarthy met with tr- Mr. Trump in Florida, Ms. Green tweeted that she too had spoken with the former president and that he had offered her encouragement. She responded to Mr. McConnell on Twitter saying, quote, The real cancer on the party was weak Republicans who only know how to lose gracefully. Kevin McCarthy is supposed to meet with Ms. Green later this week, caught between Mr. Trump's support for her and Mr. McConnell's condemnation. House Democrats on Monday indicated that they were prepared to unilaterally remove Ms. Green from her committees if Mr. McCarthy does not act, advancing a measure to strip her of assignments that will be considered by the House Rules Committee on Wednesday, February 3rd. The views and opinions expressed on Forthright Radio are those of the speaker and do not necessarily represent those of this station's staff, its members, board of directors, or contributors. Forthright Radio is a Beyond the Deep End production, broadcast each first and third Wednesday of the month from the Philo studios of KZYX and Z. I'm Joy LaClaire. You can hear past Forthright Radio programs by going to our website, forthright.media and totally expanding the conversation about oligarchy. Mariah Gallardin's TUC Radio Today at 3.30 features the economist Michael Hudson, who uses terms that explain the specific brand of today's finance capitalism, including the acronym FIRE, the finance, insurance, and real estate sector. Michael Hudson says we are experiencing a huge power shift from industrial to finance capitalism. This fire sector is impoverishing the U.S. government as well as industry and labor. And the chokehold of finance capitalism is reaching to the present COVID-19 crisis. That's TUC Radio at 3.30. Thank you for listening and for supporting KZY X and Z. 
Till next time, this is Joy LaClaire signing out for now. To this fuck fuck country It thought that we lived in a democracy This last election is shown very clearly The government's controlled by a rich elite Over time we legalized The bind of politicians with the citizens United Supreme Court decision Super PACs spent in unlimited sums Donors keeping sold on public servants Under their thumbs, that's right Fuck the CEOs that spend billions on our elections and say their money doesn't affect them. We know you pay good money for those politicians, and we know it's gonna affect their policy decisions. It works well if you're really rich, but the rest of us get no representation. Cause we don't live in a democracy. over if we do nothing it's gonna take everyone to get involved stand up for something and fight for the cause we're gonna run for office we're gonna change some laws we're gonna fight till the oligarchy falls cause we don't live in a democracy we're living in an oligarchy fighting for the one percent it's not us that they represent we don't live in a democracy enjoyed this podcast you can go to kzyx.org to find more shows and content like this one while there you can stream us live or check out our jukebox and if you like what you hear consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner we are mendocino county public broadcasting listener supported community radio kzyx philo 90.7 fm kzyz woolitz and ukiah 91.5 fm and fort bragg at 88.1 fm thanks for listening